We're so excited that you're here. My name is Brandon Som. I'm a poet and professor in the literature department. And um, we're very excited to have Jackie Wang here today. Uh, this is our first uh, reading, our first event of uh, this academic year. Um, we have uh, a great lineup uh, this year. Um, you'll start seeing these posters around campus. Uh, we have some really great events. Um, please check out our website on the literature department to get more details about these events. Also, we have a Facebook page. So visit us on Facebook, like us, um, do whatever else you do on Facebook. Um, we are there. Uh, well, maybe don't do that. Okay, sorry, sorry. I'm I'm kind of Facebook uh, shy myself. Um, so again, uh, so thrilled you're here. We're going to have um, one of our MFA graduate students, Silo Radovsky, uh, introduce uh, Jackie Wing this evening. Um, before I invite uh, Silo up, I wanted to announce a couple events coming up. We have uh, the poet uh, Seshu Foster reading for us uh, Wednesday, October 24th. It, and fi poet and fiction writer, thank you, and uh, mixed genre, uh, uh, cross-genre writer, thank you so much. I read them as, I read them as poems, too, so, yeah. <laughs> but you're right, but you're right as well. You're right as well. So, 5 o'clock, Wednesday, October 24th, Seshu Foster will be reading uh, at Geisel Library, and Professor Springer and I will have more of a debate about genre before that starts. <laughs> and then Thursday, the next day, actually, Thursday, October 25th, uh, we're going to have the poet and translator Pierre Joris uh, reading. And it's actually going to be in my classroom, our classroom. Some of my students are here in the audience, here in Pepper Canyon Hall in 122. So those are two events coming up. And we're super excited. Uh, we want to thank the Visual Arts Department for giving us this wonderful space. Uh, and we want to thank you for fitting into the space. I know some of the, uh, the, the standing room and the floor seating isn't uh, optimal, but thank you for uh, being flexible uh, and patient. Also, I want to uh, announce that we have uh, Jackie Wang's book, Carceral Capitalism, uh, this amazing book, uh, and it's uh, here, Sage from the UCSD bookstore will be selling copies of that uh, available to you after uh, the reading. Also want to say that um, uh, after the reading, uh, Jackie will uh, uh, um, uh, make herself available to uh, questions um, from the audience, so please stick around for that. But if you do need to go, I understand sometimes you need to go for classes, please uh, leave as respectfully, as quietly as possible. And please try to wait for that Q&A period. That's a good time to exit respectfully, okay? All right, without further ado, uh, Sila Rodofsky. Thank you. Um, can you hear me? All right. I'm really honored to introduce our guest tonight. Jackie Wang is a student of the Dream State, black studies scholar, prison abolitionist, poet, filmmaker, performer, and PhD candidate at Harvard University in African and African American studies. Her book, Carceral Capitalism, was published this year by Semiotext and is making a stir in its timeliness and its treatment of theoretically dense and politically charged matter. Her book, The Twitter Hive Mind is Dreaming, is forthcoming from RoboCup Press, and she is also the author of many zines, including On Being Hard Femme and Tiny Spelunker of the Oniro Womb. A multimodal engagement, Carceral Capitalism is a revolutionary work about the political economy of race and about the special role that incarceration in its many iterations plays within that. Through academic and autobiographic writing, as well as poetry, Wang forges expansive theoretical pathways, interrogating the connections between racism, cybernetics, surveillance, financial systems, and local and federal governance, incarceration in the more traditional sense, as well as discipline and predation that exceeds the geographic structures of prisons. This includes methods of racialized financial exploitation, which form their own kind of prison, 
in particular for black Americans. Anything that you've heard about the 2008 financial crisis, I would highly recommend cross-referencing with carceral capitalism. Weighing parses and advances theories around these segregated encounters with state and financial discipline, while also actively deconstructing the logics of guilt and innocence, or deserving versus undeserving, that are pillars of this structural racism. Wing writes, there's a political knot at the center of my life, a point of great density around which orbit my questions about the world and how it is structured. Wing makes the stakes of these considerations palpable in writing about her brother who was initially given a life sentence without parole at 17 years old and for years had no opportunity for judicial recourse. Weaving autobiography and poetry as Wing does into the narrative is unusual for academic work. And even in its most traditionally academic passages, carceral capitalism is a text that feels in conversation, both with others who are thinking on this issue of imprisonment and what being a subject in capitalism is like right now, but also with what lies outside of this heaviness. In its multiple textual modes, academic, poetic, autobiographic, Carceral capitalism feels to point towards an unknown, and elsewhere, the possibility of a world without prisons, the possibility and the power of approaching the world from a place of care, honoring the resilience, survival, and the uprisings we have yet to know the full effect of. Regarding prison abolition, Wing asks us, can the re-enchantment of the world be an instrument that we use to shatter the realism of the prison? In carceral capitalism, as well as in her poetic work with dreams, poetry is an integral means for witnessing and imagining the world beyond the logics that reproduce prisons and racist banking systems. Wang's poetry evokes for me dreaming in both senses of the word, the utopian conjugation, as well as that gestational state where I am porous to the world and to the connections that it contains. In a steady, interrogative and provocative voice, she invites us as readers into her nuanced understandings of the present, articulating the political structures we occupy and which occupy us. She does this while also modeling what it can look like to do criticism while staying awake to one's objects of critique, becoming more connected even to that which is physically absent and obscure, whether that absence is a source of sour sorrow or a site of possibility. It is a real gift to be here in the same room as this amazing scholar and artist. Please join me in welcoming Jackie Wang. Thank you, Silo, for that perceptive introduction. I feel like you really got the book. Um, Thank you, Brandon, for having me and for UCSD as well. It's an honor to be here, and what a full house it is tonight. Um, I'm going to read some excerpts from the conclusion of my book, Carceral Capitalism, which just came out in spring of this year. Um, so since we're on the topic of debating genre, um, I should add that it is a mixed genre work. Um, it is neither wholly theoretical nor wholly creative. Um, most of the text consists of theoretical pieces that are ventilate, ventilated with creative pieces. Um, so I kind of wanted to um, kind of create openings in the text. If it feels too bleak, too heavy, um, it requires too much energy to process all the theory, I wanted to lighten it a little bit by um, offering anecdotal writing, memoir, um, creative writing as well. And so the text um, leads up to the concluding chapter called The Prison Abolitionist Imagination. Um, so in many ways, I think of the first part of the text 
as the nightmare. And this is actually something um, Brandon Brown picked up on when he was introducing me in San Francisco. The first part of the book is the nightmare, and the ending is the dream. And I didn't want to um, end on a really um, heavy, despairing note. So I decided... um, to use poetry in the conclusion, and specifically poetry not only as a form of writing that is in verse, but poetry as a mode of thinking that can do something politically. Um, And so it was important for me to use poetry to denaturalize prisons um, and to also... um, I guess ending on the poetic note was a way of like not capitulating to the terms that are set by society. Um, I didn't want to reinforce um, the status quo by simply um, making an argument on um, the terms of the carceral society. So really, for me, writing the poetic outro was a way of creating new space, a way of creating an elsewhere, a a space to imagine a world without prisons. And the concluding chapter was inspired by Robin Kelly's book, uh, Freedom Dreams, the Black Radical Imagination. And that book, um, when I started my Ph.D. program, I came in um, with the idea of writing a a dissertation on prison abolition inspired by that book, using that book as the model. Uh, And in that book, Robin Kelly talks about um, various black radical movements. So he talks about black feminism, Uh, black Marxism, black internationalism, black nationalism, and even Afrofuturism and Afro-surrealism. And his interest in these movements is not merely um, about the, you know, the inner workings of these political movements, but the um, social vision that they, that these activists and artists offered to the world. And I wanted to also honor that visionary labor as well. Um, So this piece um, is framed as a series of conversations. Um, So I draw draw from voices, um, contemporary writers and activists, but also revolutionaries and writers from long ago. Um, And so I take passages and respond to the passages in the concluding chapter. Um, This is from The Prison Abolitionist Imagination, A Conversation. The late Mark Fisher once famously said that it is easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. The same could be said about prisons. It is easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine a world without prisons. And yet the modern prison as it currently exists in the US is a fairly recent invention. Florida, which now has one of the largest prison systems in the US, had no physical penitentiaries at the end of the Civil War and had to create its penal system from scratch. Yet, at this historical juncture, prisons have become thoroughly naturalized. Imagining and working towards a world without prisons, which is the project of prison abolition, would not only require us to fundamentally rethink the role of the state in society, but would also require us to work towards the total transformation of all social relations. A project as lofty as this is easy to dismiss as unrealistic, utopian, impractical, naive, an unrealizable dream. But what if, instead of reacting to these charges, 
with counter-arguments that persuasively demonstrate that the abolitionist position is the only sensible position, we instead strategically use these charges as a point of departure to show how the prison itself is a problem for thought that can only be unthought using a mode of thinking that does not capitulate to the realism of the present. Can the re-enchantment of the world be an instrument that we use to shatter the realism of the prison? What follows is a series of questions, conversations with revolutionaries dead and alive on death, dreams, the struggle, and the phenomenological experience of freedom. There are moments I want to enter. Will you follow me there to the place where the breathing walls quietly exhale a low freedom song? One, a dozen roses versus the police state. In From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation, Kianga Yamata Taylor writes, quote, In the hours after Mike Brown's body was finally moved, residents erected a makeshift memorial of teddy bears and memorabilia on the spot where the police had left his body. When the police arrived with a canine unit, one officer let a dog urinate on the memorial. Later, when Brown's mother, Leslie McSpadden, laid out rose petals in the form of his initials, a police cruiser whizzed by, crushing the memorial and scattering the flowers. The next evening, McSpadden and other friends and family went back to the memorial site and laid down a dozen roses. Again, a police cruiser came through and destroyed the flowers. Later that night, the uprising began." End quote. I think about how the people gathered after Mike Brown was killed, how they made a makeshift memorial on the blood-stained spot in the road where he had been murdered by the police state. What do I see in this encounter? The will of the people butting up against the police's desire to destroy, to crush all public expressions of grief. The police's show of force is unnecessary, compensatory, they want us to believe that the police cars will always crush rose petals. They tell themselves that their uniform and the power that backs it makes them invulnerable, not like the rose petals arranged in the shape of MB. Erase the memorials, erase the flowers. The people will still rise up. That night, an uprising bloomed out of the ground where the memorial flowers had been crushed. I once read an article about the dreams of dying people. There was a former cop who couldn't stop having nightmares about the people he had violated. He told a hospice nurse that on the job he had done bad stuff. Tormented by his dreams, he gets stabbed, shot, or can't breathe. Eric Garner's last I Can't Breathe circles in time to haunt the officers who take the air out of the world. That cop died with so much regret. The conscious mind of the police officer may be sure of its correctness, but the unconscious mind knows it has done terrible things. The trampling of the memorial flowers is an act of repression, but whatever you try to blot out and refuse to integrate returns with greater vigor. 
If I ever met the officers, I would ask them, what was it you tried to crush there? Was it a way to blot out awareness of your own death? And yet every time you tried to destroy the memorial, the people returned with objects that bore the memory of Mike Brown. You tried to force the people of Ferguson to forget. The people returned with a will to carry the memory into the streets. Two, the prison is our shadow. In a hypothetical conversation with his jailer, Mahmoud Darwish, a Palestinian poet, writes, quote, You, not I, are the loser. He who lives on depriving others of light drowns in the darkness of his own shadow. You will never be free of me unless my freedom is generous to a fault. Then it would teach you peace and guide you home. You, not I, are afraid of what the cell is doing to me. You who guard my sleep, dream and a delirium mined with signs. I have the vision and you have the tower, the heavy keychain and a gun trained on a ghost. I have sleepiness with its silky touch and essence. You have to stay up watching over me, lest sleepiness take the weapon from your hand before your eye can see it. Dreaming is my profession, while yours is pointless eavesdropping on an unfriendly conversation between my freedom and me, end quote. The poet prisoner haunts the guard who becomes a prisoner of his paranoia. The profession of the poet is dreaming. The profession of the jailer is to contain. The poet is the one who makes the light. The guard is the one who takes it. He who lives on depriving others of light drowns in the darkness of his own shadow. Will the ones who built the nightmare also drown in it? The prisoner knows the true meaning of freedom, while the guard knows only how to police this freedom. What does the jailer give up when he becomes an instrument of the state? Does the jailer remember what it means to love, to grieve, to rub the muscles of freedom or borrow a bird's example? They cannot annihilate what we carry in our hearts and minds. This vision of an elsewhere or the memory of a bird. How many poets and revolutionaries discovered freedom in a cell? Three, entombed flowers. In 1917, the revolutionary Rosa Luxemburg wrote to her comrade Sophie Leibnick from prison, quote, Yesterday I lay awake for a long time. I dreamed to myself about various things in the dark, how odd it is that I'm constantly in a joyful state of exaltation without any particular reason. I lie there quietly, alone, wrapped in these many layered black veils of darkness, boredom, lack of freedom, and winter. And at the same time, my heart is racing with an incomprehensible, unfamiliar joy, as though I were walking across a flowering meadow in radiant sunshine. And all the while I'm searching within myself for some reason for this joy, I find nothing and must smile to myself again and laugh at myself. I believe that the secret is nothing other than life itself. And in the crunching of the damp and the damp sand beneath the slow, heavy steps of the centuries, 
a beautiful small song of life is being sung. If only one knows how to listen properly. At such moments, I think of you, and I would like so much to pass on this magical key to you, so that always and in all places and all situations, you would be aware of the beautiful and the joyful, so that you too would live in a joyful euphoria, as though you were walking across a multicolored meadow." End quote. In the dark of the night, you traveled to a colorful meadow, and with your powerful imagination wove that meadow into a cloak of stars that you imparted to your comrade Sophie to wear as a shield against everything terrible. What bloomed in your mind that night as you lay quietly listening to the boots of the sentries crunch the sand? You were sharpening your perceptive faculties so you could tune in to the exalted frequency. You were sensitized by your cell, by the boredom weighing you down until the pressure of the darkness gave way to an understanding of the deepest mysteries of what it means to be alive, of the connection between desire and politics. I think of your fate, of George Jackson's fate, of Fred Hampton's fate. The state must know when the universe gives birth to a true revolutionary. It must see in them a light it must extinguish, lest their spark find and set alight the divine spark in us all, which would spread until the world as we know it has been appended. Alone in your cell, your body became pure nerve. You were perceiving everything. It made you giddy, the inner joy you felt against the bleak backdrop of the prison. I imagine how you passed your time there, studying political economy and botany, writing letters to your comrades, assembling your herbaria, preparing for the revolution, getting lost in the flowers of your imagination. You were the secret, you were the principle of life itself. You were a tree they had to cut down. Four, the stars seen from prison. In September 1971, the prisoners of Attica rose up, took the prison, and carved out a small space of freedom a temporary liberated zone from which they could observe the stars. Heather Ann Thompson, in a history of the Attica uprising, writes, quote, Despite the sense of foreboding, there were moments of levity, and for some, even a feeling of unexpected joy. As men who hadn't felt the fresh air of night for years, reveled in this strange freedom. Out in the dark, music could be heard, drums, a guitar, vibes, sax, flute, that the brothers were playing. This was the lightest many of the men had felt since being processed into the maximum security facility. That night was in fact a deeply emotional time for all of them. Carlos Roche watched as tears of elation ran down the withered face of his friend, Owl, an old man who had been locked up for decades. You know, Owl said in wonderment, I haven't seen the stars in 22 years. As Clark later described this first night of the rebellion, while there was much trepidation about what might occur next, the men in the D yard also felt wonderful because no matter what happened later on, 
They couldn't take this night away from us, end quote. In the cracks of the prison, something bloomed, a field of wildflowers imposed on a night sky. Blood was coming, joy and dread mingled there, infusing the air with a powerful sense of rapture and uncertainty. What exalted frequency was discovered that night, then lost when Governor Nelson Rockefeller ordered the police to put down the uprising. Blood was coming. The new world never arrived. How terrible it must have been for W.E.B. Du Bois to realize he had mistaken dusk for dawn that darkness would follow, and not the radiance of a new day, his people's strivings rendered crepuscular. The dream of liberation collapsed in a heap of blood-stained rubble. Blood was coming. The drumming would not last. The prisoners would be punished for daring to glimpse the stars. Will those who have constructed this hell ever wonder, what was it all for? The subordination of all life to these systems that hem us in. Why cover the sky? Five, planting the dream. In freedom dreams, the black radical imagination Robin D.G. Kelly writes, quote, What shall we build on the ashes of a nightmare? I won't propose much more since the design and realization of such a space ought to be the product of a collective imagination shaped and reshaped by the very process of turning rubble and memory into the seeds of a new society, end quote. I see, I see our shadow in the trees, watching the wheel unfold. I see our one shadow on the wall. I see your restless hand in the spider's thread. I am the ice cave and there is water, deep blue and white, a light at the bottom. I am equal to my love for you. Let down your hair, willow in the moonlight. The river lulls us into the dream. Nightmares jostle branches in our eyes. I long for the world that is before you, the plate you set on the slate of tomorrow. Your fingers flutter to feel for the grass between the valley where one foot follows the other into the flaming creek. We don't know what name to give the throbbing stone perched atop the hill. From here, I see for you. Look at what I lost when you were lost, and I could only hear the call of the stones. A body returned floats down the river dressed in candles. I send you the secret while you are asleep the nights you carried in the length of a strand of hair, the unforgiving flash of his teeth. I stroke your cheek to unlock your jaw and release the rose you carry in your mouth. Your tongue is raw and your mouth is filling with blood. Dear, dear, Forgive us for having fallen so far from where you planted the seed. At the bottom of the sea, waiting for the body to ride the stream back 
to where the rubble gave birth to the first dream. The egg cracks, night wanders seaward, barefoot in her evening slip. And by this sadness you are shown the path to the holding sea, a trail burned by a herd of somnambulant turtles who folded one by one in their grief until a single remained to carry the breath of time back to the seed. Thank you. So we can do a Q&A now. I think that's the plan. And I don't know if there's a microphone for the podcast or... Yeah, actually, there isn't a microphone, so maybe if we can just speak up um, um, nice and loud for everyone to hear your question. Does anyone have a question? Can you raise your hand? Okay. Um, I was wondering what leftist like tendency you follow. Like, I'm assuming anarcho-communism, but I don't want to assume. So. Oh, my tendency. Um, I think um, from I kind of was raised in the anarchist queer punk milieu, and I think I still consider that my home. Um, I. Uh, I think I started identifying as an anarchist when I was 14, reading a lot of Emma Goldman and Kropotkin and Bakunin. Um, So I think, um, and it's interesting because people say that anarchists don't have an analysis of capitalism and Marxists don't have an analysis of the state. Um, But, you know, writing carceral capitalism, you need, you need both of those analyses. So I'm some kind of anti-authoritarian Marxist. <laughs> yes. Uh, when writing this book, did you get, uh, did you have any like, interviews of people in prisons at all? I didn't do any ethnographic research for this book. I communicate with people in prison just, you know, not as part of my research because my brother is in prison in Florida and there are other prisoners in Florida I communicate with as well, Um, but I didn't do any direct interviews for this book. Um, My current research is more um, archival based, but I might incorporate some oral history. It gets very um, complicated when you're doing academic research involving prisoners because you have to go through an IRB process and it's actually quite difficult to get that permission to work with prisoners. Did you have a follow-up question? Yes, uh, where in San Francisco did you read this? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I read at the Poetry Center um, and the Green Arcade. Um, So the Poetry Center is at San Francisco State University. I'm looking at Lily, because Lily also read with me in San Francisco. I'm like, am I getting it right? Um, yeah, it was a really great um, group of people who organized that event. Lily also read, what was the bookstore called that you read at? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm like putting Lily on the spot, but yeah. Um, it was San Francisco State and the Green Arcade. Um, it's funny because there, there's all this, um, and since we're, I'm go, I'm ripping off the conversation that happened about genre, um, earlier, but I kind of don't, I never, I feel like I'm constituted such that I cannot, uh, respect disciplinary boundaries as much as I try to. I'm like, okay, I'm going to write. I'm going to write this academic paper, but oh, I really want to talk about this uh, Afrofuturist art collective in Philadelphia that makes noise music or something. I can't really separate my interests. Sometimes you 
need to to be legible for certain audiences. Um, I was kind of lucky working with Semiotext because they let me do whatever I wanted. Um, there wasn't even very much um, editorial input. So they were just like, yeah, turn it in when it's done. And then between the first draft and the last draft, I more than doubled the manuscript length. So I kind of kept adding things and it became this weird mutant creature by the end. Yes. Excuse me. So, um, in Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, she talks about the cyclical nature of oppression. Mm -hmm. And so, following slavery, you have Reconstruction, and then Jim Crow, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And uh, you talk a little bit in your introduction about um, some of the, uh, one, the way that kind of the new Jim Crow or incarceration has been mm -hmm. used to oppress. But you also begin to shine a light on, you know, given some of the gains that we've seen in the mm -hmm. criminal justice, if we want to call it, or some of the short gains that we've uh, seen mm -hmm. in the criminal justice kind of legislature, particularly in mm -hmm. California, yeah. over the last couple of weeks, there mm -hmm. were some really big changes. Yeah. Um, but you begin to talk about kind of envisioning this new state mm -hmm. uh, with surveillance and kind of, uh, can you talk a little bit about kind of looking into the future, mm -hmm. how do we kind of come to terms with and begin to resist mm -hmm. what uh, quote unquote incarceration begins to look like in the future? Yeah. That's a great question, and thank you for also bringing up the California context, because my current research is about the history of the first bail reform movement, which actually mirrors quite closely the current um, bail reform movement, and even the, the legal arguments that are being made to critique money bail and cash bail and the bail bond um, industry in particular. Um, but it's all, they're also similar insofar as they both propose risk assessment as the alternative to money bail, and this has been very contentious in the California context. Um, I think uh, abolitionists in California have been very critical of um, how the bail reform was able to pass in California, so the problem with um, Risk assessment is um, the most socially marginalized people are marked as high risk, um, and it creates this um, cycle of inequality or where those inequalities can actually be sedimented. Um, so, ooh, this is a topic that keeps me up at night because the first chapter of my dissertation was all about this topic in particular and risk assessment. Um, but if you challenge um, money bail without challenging uh, pretrial detention or private and public forms of surveillance, you can actually see the carceral state grow and become more pow powerful. Um, and so something that is also proposed as an alternative to money bail is GPS, ankle monitoring shackles. And this is something that um, people who are critical of what they call e-carceration um, think as a, of as like a, not necessarily a win or progress. Um, and as someone who is now trying to be a historian and wear the historian, Hat, I think um, studying history, you kind of see that, as Angela Davis says, that the history of the prison as an institution is the history of reform. Mm -hmm. And I do feel like we're in a reform moment now, so it could be this situation that you referenced um, when you talked about Michelle Alexander's New Jim Crow, where the new um, techniques that are being develop to respond to this reform moment can just, you know, reinscribe racism again in a different form. So this is something that I think about a lot and I almost feel compelled now to kind of, I was kind of saving my um, current research for my next book. I'm like, I should try to get this work out because bail reform is happening right now. Um, and these questions are really, really important. Thank you.
Yes. I guess I'm just wondering how you navigate like um, the thematics in your poetry and being like a student in an Ivy League school. Uh huh. What was the first part of it? The what in poetry? Like the thematics or like what you're talking about in your poetry uh -huh. that is like very important for you, just like a personal yeah. experience. Mm -hmm. And then the the being at a like institution like Harvard University, which they don't like the fact that I'm a poet. They sent me a letter after my uh, after my first year where they basically told me to like stop doing poetry. Um, it's very hard. I know, like this does. The attitude is like this doesn't count for anything, and this not scholarship. Nobody's going to take you seriously. Um, but you can't tell a poet to stop writing poetry. So, um, and I also, you know, it's funny because I I read at UC Davis last night, and I had four different versions um, of like a talk slash reading related to the book, and two were more theoretical and academic, and two were more poetic. And I was like, okay, I gotta read the an academic part to the academic audience, or else they're not gonna take me seriously. And then at the last minute, I decided to go with the poetry, and I was glad that I followed my instinct in that moment, uh, and didn't try to um, I don't know, perform mastery for a crowd of <laughs> academics. Yes, Brandon? Thank you so much for the reading, it's fantastic. Thank um, you. To echo Yidi's question, mm -hmm. I was really struck by, in your introduction, how you talked about poetry denaturalizing the prison, or mm -hmm. denaturalizing that institution in our minds. Mm -hmm. um, um, could you speak a little bit more about how, uh, how poetry can do that work? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. Um, my poetry is dream-based, um, and there is a quote that I think I didn't read in this version that was um, about the uh, dreams of Asada's grandmother, Asada Shakur. Um, she was a Black Panther who escaped and lived and might still live in exile in Cuba. Um, also Tupac Shakur's godmother as well. Um, but she said dreams and reality are opposites. Action synthesizes them. And I feel like for me, um, poetry is fundamentally tied to the practice of, of dreaming. So when I'm using poetry, I'm not like beholden to, you know, the rules of, of rational logic or something, which I feel like gives me space to kind of let my imagination roam, kind of tune in to the reverberations between things, find openings in unexpected Places And this is also why um, I wanted to emphasize that I'm not necessarily using poetry strictly, um, you know, in, a, in the sense of poetry as, as a form that is usually written in verse, but poetry and poetic modes of thinking being tied to porous experience and states as well. Um, I'm like showing my hippie col colors beneath <laughs> my shell right here, but I, um, yeah, I don't know. I really like, um, yeah, tuning into the poetic fr frequency. I feel like also that conclusion was very much inspired by Sun Ra's whole philosophy mm -hmm. of vibrations and trying to think of poetry as tempo making and rhythm making and ways of synchronizing people and energies and creating new vibrations that make something new possible. This is like, I'm getting like pretty woo 
now, but if you've ever seen um, the Sun Ra movie, Space is the Place, he like lands on this other planet, he's like, there's a different vibration here. Um, so I feel like, yeah, my practice is very much in, informed by that po poetic philosophy. There is a hand back here. Uh, yeah, so um, for future projects, do you plan on speaking to uh, black nationalists or any, um, or any uh, like black uh, intelligentsia, like um, black professors, black teachers? Because I think if you're going to talk about black nationalism revolution, mm -hmm. it's important to talk with these people and really immerse yourself into, mm -hmm. into it. And um, yeah, so if you plan on studying Um, I'm currently um, studying my committee. My advisor is Elizabeth Hinton, so she's a she's a black feminist historian of prisons and police. Um, she wrote a book called "From the War on Poverty to the War on Crime: The Making of Mass Incarceration in America," um, and she's very much. Her original dissertation idea was about the LA chapter of the Black Panther Party, and she was a student of Robin Kelly, who's at UCLA also. Um, but I do consider myself maybe not dir directly in that I haven't um, worked directly with some figures that I draw from in my work, um, but I've done a bit of research on people like Angela Davis, um, so I um, uh, did a fellowship this summer uh, working on curating an exhibition of um, highlights from Angela Davis's papers. So that, even though I wasn't working with her directly, it was a huge honor to even get to uh, read and, um, you know, process her entire life's work, because Everything from her baby book up until up until her recent manuscripts is in the collection that I was working with, um, and I feel like since I'm in California, the the tradition that I I draw from is the '60s and '70s prisoner movement that was kind of launched by. George Jackson and the Soledad brothers, and they were in San Quentin here in California. Um, and it's kind of uh, immeasurable the impact George Jackson has had on prisoner organizing, especially in California. Um, but he's someone who, I mean, he, he was murdered in 1971, but um, his work is continues to deeply inform my work as well. Um, okay, were there other questions? I'm, yes, I'm curious to hear if your research delves at all into detainment generally, or just thinking about the detainment at the border or mm -hmm. around immigration. Yeah, this is something that um, was one of the reasons why I was um, reluctant to turn in my book when it was due. So I basically finished writing the book when Trump was elected and I was finalizing the conclusion. Um, and I was like, oh man, I need to go back to the drawing board and rethink all of these things. Obama tried to phase out um, private prisons at the federal level, and then when Trump was elected, he reinstated it under Jeff Sessions, uh, a very nefarious figure in the Trump administration. Um, and and I, I've been thinking a bit about um, the growth of uh, private detention centers in the domain of immigrant detention in particular. Um, I don't really buy into this private prisons are moral and, or sorry, private prisons are immoral and public prisons are moral <laughs> distinction. Most prisons in the United States are public and it's not only private prisons. <laughs> 
that are bad, but it is um, something that needs to be thought through why private prisons are, are so popular in the domain of immigrant detention. And I think it's probably because immigrants don't have the same rights as citizens and um, private prison companies feel like they have the moral license to detain people who aren't um, given the rights of citizens. Um, but yeah, it's something that I think is a huge pull in the literature as well. There's um, a scholar named Kelly Hernandez at UCLA um, who's written a history of the border, US-Mexico border, and She's written a history of um, LA and the carceral state in LA, um, prisons and jails. And um, yeah, I think that that's something that I would have liked to have thought about more and written about more, but my editors were like, you have to turn it in at some point because everything was changing as I was writing. As I was finalizing the book, even the juvenile um, laws that I wrote about in relation to my brother's case, juvenile life without parole sentences, um, the, the laws were changing, and so I kept feeling like I had to update the book, and at some point you have to <laughs> turn it in and let it go to print. Um, other questions? Maybe we can take a couple more. Or if there's no more, we can end. And I'm available, okay, yes. Uh, could you talk to us a little about the experience of having a brother who's been uh, in, incarcerated for, sounds like the majority of his life, mm -hmm. part, part of your life, um, and how kind of that relationship has influenced your, um, your view of the world outside of so I'm not asking too much about how it's impacted your view of the prison system itself, mm -hmm. but kind of looking at this larger picture in your mm -hmm. own life and how you see that kind of reflected in, in what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, this is something that um, came up a bit yesterday at the talk that I was at. Um, the There's a group of formerly incarcerated students at UC Davis, um, and there's groups, I think, at many of the... UC schools, Berkeley has a group called Undocument or Underground Scholars that's um, formerly incarcerated students. Um, and I was talking with a professor um, at Davis who had um, a father and a brother who was in prison. Um, and she says when she teaches her introduction to Chicano studies, class when she was teaching it at uh, UCLA that she had one year had like 85 students and only four of the students didn't have an immediate family member who was incarcerated so that means a sibling or a parent hmm. and so in California um, Florida these are places with you know the biggest prison systems in the country, and that means also in the world, because the United States is pretty exceptional in its incarceration rate. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's impossible for me to ignore. I was in high school when it happened, so that I was 16 and I'm 30 now, so that's my entire adult life and basically half of my life. Um, and it's hell for families. Um, and, you know, it's, there's the trauma of the separation, um, the trauma of the anticipation and deferral of hope. Um, so there's, there are always, you know, legal things being processed, maybe a hearing will be set for a certain date and then it won't happen and it won't happen and it won't happen. And in Florida, the situation is such that um, 
appeals are basically killed and can't go to the Florida Supreme Court because the way the system is designed. So if you have a hearing in Florida and let's say it's an evidentiary hearing that's introducing new evidence, they can say, they can just reject um, the appeal and not give any reason why. And if they don't give a written response, then you can't take it up to any of the higher levels. Um, so it basically kills the appeal and the way that it's designed. So this is something that if you have like a family member, you're constantly trying to navigate this Kafka-esque scenario where it's like, you don't know who to talk to, you're told one thing, you know, my brother um, had a resentencing hearing while I was finishing the book um, and the prosecutor claimed he was going to offer a deal. It never came. I had to kept flying to Florida to, to be a character witness and then it would get canceled. I'd go back to Cambridge, go back to Florida. And even the, um, the amount of money it costs to stay, in to stay in touch with people who are incarcerated is huge too. It's a huge drain on the resources of family members um, who, who have a loved one who's incarcerated. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I felt like very hopeful meeting these students um, yesterday at UC Davis because it's so important for um, people who are impacted by the prison system to have a support network and it's nice that now, um, since this issue has kind of um, entered the mainstream, I feel like it's lifted some of the stigma, the tentacles of the carceral state uh, are so far reaching that it's impossible to, um, you know, navigate the world without being affected by it in some way. Even teaching a class on prisons, um, I'm TAing one now at Harvard, about 35% of the class, or at least the students comfortable sharing had family members who were incarcerated. And you would think that at a place like Harvard, oh, the student body, you know, they would never have any contact with the system, but it's, act it's not true. Um, it is very far reaching. Thank you. Maybe one last question. I'm also available to talk afterwards too. Yes. Hi. Um, I think it's so awesome that like you mentioned how you kind of grew up like anarchist and like punk and everything, and then here you are like doing the whole like scholarly thing and Ivy League institution. And um, I was also really interested by that quote you're talking about like dreams and reality, and then like how these kind of and not only just action but life um, you know life our life on this planet is short and who knows what's after um, <laughs> our brief existence here but yeah I don't know I think that that's kind of my philosophy is act in the world in accordance with the dream with mm -hmm what I want to be in the world. Um, it's also why I feel particularly inspired by thinkers um, like Fred Moten, who's also a poet, and in, the very, in his very being and the way that he inhabits the world and engages with people is creating new social forms, and that's, you know, all we have is each other and these improvised forms that we create with each other. Um, 
And so I think that, I don't know, in terms of, um, maybe it even starts there in terms of <laughs> changing the world. Is like, okay, what social forms can we create? And it's not even like we have to sit and plan how we're going to talk to each other and do things or whatever. It's like this dance that we do with each other. Um, I don't know if that's an answer <laughs> to the question. Um, I mean, that was the fun part about growing up in like the queer punk milieu is, um, you know, you don't, you're not beholden to the same expectations as everyone else. You don't have to shower every day. You can <laughs> hang out if you want to. Um, <laughs> You know, you can do potlucks or what I did when I lived in Baltimore was like I had a gorilla office at the Johns Hopkins library because I had no place to read or write in my punk house. Um, so I just, you know, found people who could give me access to various resources. That's also something Fred Moten talks about. Is, you can steal from the university. Um, and nobody's watching all the time, so you can, you know, do your classes the way you want to do them. Um, yeah, thank you. So I'll be around um, to sign books, and if, if the bookstore um, seller sells out, I also have more copies as well. Thank you so much for...